today's guest, Katerina Cerveni. You know, the plan is a framework. So what is uh, obviously important uh, for us as, as recruitment leaders is to understand how much budget do we have um, and and uh, to stick to it. Because that's yeah, that's that's the basic. But how how you fill uh, that framework with life, it's it's a journey. Because the one th on the one hand side, and we both know it, you know, you have this fantasy of the ideal profile, which then gets hit by reality, what the market has and what the market gives. Um, and there are these little details like uh, finding someone who uh, um, for a for a global role in in a small country it's it's a very tough cookie because mostly uh, the companies don't have headquarters in that country. So if you mix a specific language skill with a specific demand on, on the seniority and you look in the, in the wrong territory, you might never find someone who fits the profile. But long story short, I think, yes, planning is a good thing, but it needs to be um, flexible and adaptable, first of all, to the reality, but also, you know, asking the right question might change the plan quite quick. Then you can build trust and then you can spend less time communicating and more time I'm just getting shit done. Then I went home and, and thought about this sentence. We basically put it on the table. Hiring takes time. People are trained. How to objectively judge certain situations. It's very, 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 very hard to change things. That was the learning. Entrepreneurs with empathy. On the people side. Hello, Katerina. Welcome to The People Factor. Thank you so much for having me. Katerina is a very seasoned interim manager in recruitment. And she was at quite some big tech logos. Tesla, Adobe, UiPath. And today we talk a bit about recruitment, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Could My you most favorite yeah. topic is recruitment. <laughs> Could you tell us how did you get into recruitment? Oh, yes. Um, that was quite a funny story. Um, it must have been someone in the 90s when I saw, um, a, a, let's say, a TV magazine and there was a portrait of a female headhunter. I was absolutely fascinated because that was some headhunting was not known in Germany at that time. It came um, somewhere in the in the 90s, mid 90s, early 2000s to Germany, and it was not regulated at that time. That's also something which we need to keep in mind. And I was fascinated by the fact that this woman in the television series was talking about you know only the best clients. Um, she's selecting max three candidates, then she presents them, and then she gets an enormous fee. And I was like, wow, this is, this is the job. Sold. That absolutely is, <laughs> I'm sold. This is a dream job. <laughs> What's better than that? And I was imagining it a little bit like, you know, Germany is the next superstar. You invite your 10 people, they, you know, do their performance, and then you select the top three out of them and you present them to the client. Nobody told me that they, these people are not applying, that you have to hunt them. So that was the little detail I was missing out. However, um, when uh, I was around about 23, I was searching for my first job, what to do, where's my destination, where my career might go. It was absolutely clear to me it will be something with people and something with talking. Talking to people was like my core competence, nothing else. <laughs> and um, there was a headhunter in Munich which was actually looking for, uh, for a junior consultant, someone to start and to learn basics. And now you have to imagine, how did we work in recruitment at the time? So I started with that headhunter. Um, what year are we in now? We are in uh, January 2000. January 2000. Yes. Yeah, so Exciting times in tech. It's, it's 
it around was, the internet. <laughs> it was very exciting in tech, and also it was a specialized headhunter for technology companies. Wow! So it was in Munich. In Munich, it was tech headhunting, and it was considered a, tech headhunting was like considered the king's discipline. Mm. And I was like, cool, this is something I want to do. No one else, can, uh, you know, everyone is like a little bit scared for, uh, about uh, technology. It sounded, it was new, it was a bit complex. I was completely all in. So I started working at that company, and um, you have to imagine we didn't have any Xing, any LinkedIn, any Stepstone, no monster. Not even a smartphone. We, not even a smartphone, very likely. Yeah, you're right. I didn't have a smartphone at that time. <laughs> I had a modem under my table. So whenever I wanted to connect to the internet, I had to uh, hijack the phone line. To, to I love it. <laughs> it was great times when I wanted to surf in the internet back then and my mom took a, took a call. I was like, mm. Yes, <laughs> it, was, it was really a problem and, and it was hyper expensive to connect to the internet. Mm. So um, when I started working there, I got um, basically the yellow pages and the phone. And, um, yes, call calling. Is now <laughs> and cold calling was, coming? No, you first <sighs> have to identify everything. Everyone. Yes. So you have to Research. sneak into those companies, figure out how the whole structure looks like, then identify the right people. It was hard work. So I would mm. say the work which you're doing today with LinkedIn, like one hour of sourcing and you can generate, a, you know, around about 20, 30, 40 candidates, depending on the role, sometimes more, sometimes less. Uh, identification took six weeks just to get the core people. But it was extremely targeted. So yeah. we were not wasting time. How to did you do it? <laughs> T talk us through a role. <laughs> what, what was one of the roles you, you headhunted for back then? Well, it was uh, very often for, for developers mm -hmm. or development leads for certain technologies. So sometimes it was also sales uh, sales functions within high-tech uh, uh, companies etc mm -hmm. etc et so munich um, especially i guess right so it was mainly munich um in that early times guess what one of my clients was amazon oh and they were selling books uh -huh. they had a very very tiny office somewhere behind the airport of munich and i was their headhunter so i was basically doing the entire search for the first roles they were hiring i don't remember exactly what kind of profile that yeah. was um, but it was definitely something for the Amazon platform in engineering I remember that and I knew from the briefing at that time already that they are planning to be more than a bookstore and that was one of the I would call it the beauty of that role or of that profession. I felt like someone who can connect with people in the high-tech industry, asking them, you know, what are projects you're particularly yeah. proud of? What is a project you're currently working on? Walk me through. And they were giving me all this information about future technologies because development which is happening today is technology which we might be able to use in the future. And I felt so blessed with all these, you know, insights of the technology environment, I, it was just beautiful. So, but to, coming back to your question, how did we do that? So we literally first identified the people, which was also a very good source at that time, was if there were some specialized fairs. Mm -hmm. You know, specialized fairs usually had the um, members magazine or mm -hmm. everyone who is participating on that with a stand and um, like Sabit was a big deal at that time. And um, the Sabit catalog 
with all those participants and, uh, and sponsors and who, who were present at that fair, they were structured by branch, by technology in these catalogs. So that was a far quicker way to create a target list first and then to know which companies to approach first to identify the key people in that role and then approach them later. And obviously in between the identification to find out who is doing that role in that particular company and the approach of that person, we always had to put a little bit of a, let's say, a week in between at least, because otherwise the voice would be recognized and you don't get connected to that individual in, you know, working in that company so fast. So, um, what was Amazon up for in the early 2000s? What what did they want to hire for? What was the pitch? Well, they they were basically I I remember and. Please don't get me wrong, it's nearly 24 years ago, right? Yes. Maybe 22. So I remember it It was in the technology department, it was for people developing, but don't ask me what. I mean, let's be honest, it was programming, you know, the uh, the, the online store for uh, for uh, the, the, the book sales, which they were doing at that time. No, why I'm asking is and, because... And helping them to, to, you know, to get bigger, stronger, um, making uh, the whole uh, technology, you know, scalable so that they can sell other products in the future. At yeah. that time, we were told in the briefing, maybe one day they will sell even cars or houses over that platform. This is what I wanted but to we go didn't, into. Yeah. Because um, one previous guest, Stefan Ries from SAP, um, he was also in tech in the early 90s and he told me that at Microsoft when he had his job in Munich he also did this, something similar than you do or did yeah. and he said that Bill Gates was very present and very visionary and he wanted information at its fingertips yeah? Yeah. and now we know what what this meant back then nobody knew what it meant yes <laughs> and exactly. I, I just wanted to understand maybe already at from Amazon you already had some kind of vision communicated yeah the only you. vision what I what I got at that time which was for me already the groundbreaking information is that Amazon is not only a bookstore yeah and it was a bookstore yes oh only Oh. There was not any other product. So the, the Amazon we know today was so far away from what we've seen before. And we couldn't even imagine how big this platform will, will become at that point. If I would have known, I would have bought some stock at that time, but I haven't. <laughs> so <laughs> that was that was one, one little story during that time. But I, I was working for multiple clients and it was um, extremely engaging for me. I remember one uh, candidate once told me that they're working on uh, mobile devices connected to the internet, which was mind-blowing. I didn't have a mobile phone at that time. And imagining that even the internet, which was not physically working in the office yet, beside of the modem, that I will have that on my mobile phone. I mean, it was mind-blowing. And other people were telling, uh, telling me that they're working on touch screens for the industry. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even imagine what a touch screen might look yeah. like and why for the industry. And you say, well, imagine you're somewhere where production happens and in this production environment, you're dealing with a lot of dust and with a lot of particles in the air. So obviously, if you have a keyboard that constantly gets dirty, it will break down quite quickly. And, you know, just to put a cover over it doesn't do the 
trick. <laughs> so they were developing these kind of devices. So at that time, I was coming home every single day with a new information, how the technology future of the world will look like, of Germany will look like. I was hyper excited. I was all in in that job. And then a few years later, um, uh, or basically I started in Munich and then I was even asked to, to build up um, a new, how you call it, a new office in Hamburg together with uh, the leader of the office. So we were a, a two-person team. I knew how to headhunt, he knew how to build a company. And together we, we created uh, this, uh, this hub in, in Hamburg. And at some point, you know, shortly after 9-11, we went into the big, you know, burst of the IT bubble. Mm -hmm. um, it was obvious that having a web page is not doing the trick. You need to have some content. And there was no content. I mean, web pages were created to, to post the office address on it with the phone number but the processes and there, there was no con you know no content no no usability of these web pages so at that point um pretty much every company which was hiring for tech had a higher freeze they were just releasing people were reforming them completely and we went into a big economical crisis in around end of you know around 2002 something what we have now something yeah. what we have now yes Yes, it was it was severe at that point, and um, I was young, I was fresh, I was motivated, I loved my job, and uh, I was crazy enough to say, well, then I will build my own company. So I found it was twenty seven, and um, one question: Was it sev more severe in the early two thousand or no? The crisis. That's a very, uh, very difficult question to answer because I think a crisis hits you also personally. And at that time, I was not really thinking about the entire world. I was more thinking, how can I build, uh, you know, pay my bills without having uh, a big amount of, uh, of of funding on my bank account. I was young. I was. Uh, around about 20, 26, 27 at that time. So I was more scared how I get out of that crisis <laughs> rather than looking what does it mean for the, for the economy of the world. Mm -hmm, I was mm -hmm. too young, too naive at that point. Um, I would say it was it was different, but of the same severity. And I would also compare it to the same type of crisis we had when Lehman Brothers fell mm -hmm. and what we experienced around 2008, 2009. <coughs> I think the big difference, what I'm realizing or what I'm feeling today is this, 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 you know, I would say this mass releases from the largest and biggest brands which we're experiencing right now. I can't remember having seen that before in that severity. Yeah, I did a short analysis because I had to prepare for a podcast um, on exactly that topic. And maybe you can also see my screen for the listeners. We have in front of us employees laid off over the past five quarters. So in Q1 2021, we had around 9,900 layoffs in tech. Q2, 347,000. Q3, 350,000, so it stayed at one level. But then in Q4, in, it increased, the number of layoffs increased by 128% to 80,000 people laid off. And now we are in Q1, today when we record the episode 17th of February, and the data is from 16th of February, 103,000 people 
laid off in Q1, half of Q1 already. So another 30% increase. When you just look at the big logos, Google 12,000, Microsoft 10,000, Salesforce 8,000, Amazon 8,000 in Q1, but also 10,000 in Q4, Meta 11,000 in Q4, and Cisco 4,100 in Q4. So we could go through that numbers. It's big. It's big, and what I think, it's over. It's not fully over, but we saw the peak or currently see the peak in this quarter? I, I would agree on that, but based on feelings, I don't have the numbers. But um, No, it's just a um, conversation um, about yeah, but, feelings. But, my, <laughs> but, but honestly, my, uh, it's, it's also what I would observe that the Big Bang is over. However, what, what really shocks me is is the impact of what does it do to the people? Because if you look at some of the CVs of the people who have been released, they've been with the companies for many years, yes. it yes. not has, you know, it's not has not only targeted people who just were in the probation period or just started, didn't had any credentials, like or were an overhire recently. But we're talking about people who were like six years, eight years with the company, and we all know how these companies as well operate. They they give give you a home, they mm. want everything mm -hmm. from you, but they give you so much. So at some point after a few years working for such a large corporation with such a strong brand, which you can identify with, um, it feels like family. Yes, and so I can only imagine that getting an email saying thank you. Um, your account is closed, <laughs> please return your hardware, this might feel like a divorce. So it's a real crisis for each of those individuals. And I'm reading the, the LinkedIn goodbyes they're currently sending through. Into and the probably networks. you also hired a lot of people into that um, companies in the past years because... Well, I uh, well Tesla has not reduced these big numbers, and I'm not aware that Adobe has reduced big numbers. At no. least they are not on the on the peak. And you always have some attrition. You always have some some people uh, to be let go in in certain stages. But I haven't worked for for Google or Salesforce in the past. Yeah. I just know that the 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 admin, I was working with colleagues coming from those companies or going to those companies, and and it's quite. I would say I was, it is comparable to Adobe. They create an atmosphere of respect, of you know, of of your uh, all the diversity. You can live here, inclusion and massive topic. You literally feel at home, and they they take care of you. They give you the love and the respect and the reward you earn with your hard work. So it's a kind of a mutual agreement. As long as I work as hard as I can and I stretch myself into new projects, I, I stand on the constantly, you know, continuous growth curve, then um, I will be fine. I will progress and I will, can make a career in this organization. And I'm pulling the plug. It's, it's tough. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, and that's, that's a question I, which, which popped into my mind just uh, recently after, you know, <laughs> scanning through LinkedIn and, and those stories. I'm wondering if this culture of belonging has got a crack by this action or by this mass layoffs. Because, Good question. Because this is a, a little bit of a, um, 
context I was reading out of those those statements, uh, like uh, I haven't thought, you know, what people are writing on LinkedIn, like I haven't thought that I will be, you know, the one being laid off from my company, which I worked for in so many years. So I, I do believe it has disappointed not only those who were impacted, but also those who stayed. And it might have an effect on the brand. I agree. When when we just look at layoffs, okay, in in the time Q2 2020 when COVID hit, mm. there were layoffs. But previously and in between, big tech did not see it. Yeah. And it was always year over year, quarter over quarter growth. Everything was positive. Everybody wanted to conquer the world. And of course, then it's maybe also easier to create this belonging because the main storyline is positive. It, it has some kind of vision and people believe into it. At some point, if you then need to let people go, of course, people can still believe in it. But I think it's not so easy to just, to just act as you acted and everybody's believing it. I think what is a very human question is when something happens in your life, you you try to regroup or make a sense out of it and also to learn from it. And I think what people learned that this illusion of being loved and a part of a, of a, of a tribe or of a community which is, you know, working against the same goals mm. by sharing the same values, by, you know, joining uh, also, uh, you know, activities outside of the work. I mean, you're talking about people who were living or working in roles where they traveled with their colleagues, where they have very regular meetings physically in the offices. They have spent two thirds of their lives there or the daily time when they awake up. So more time in the company than with their family. And I think when, when something like, like um, you know, losing a job or, or being, you know, or, or heading towards a divorce or even, even the death of a friend or a relative, it always gives people this moment of pause when they think, what do I do with that? It feels all, it feels awful. What mm -hmm. do I do? What do I learn from that? And I think one of the key learnings some of these people might take away is never ever fall in love with a company so much that it hurts so much to get uh, laid off. And that's a pity, because this this full engagement is I I love my job. I go full speed in this passion which you can create out of yourself and you know by focusing on tasks and growing with the company this is what makes people you know they enjoy their work it makes people happy they take something out of that and now it's taken away so i i do believe it will have an impact on on the mindset of how much do i sell my soul to an employer how much do i give all and uh, can I trust? At which, comp which company you worked with or for, did you see this bond as the strongest bond you've seen? I had an extremely strong bond with Adobe. And people who know me, they, they know I, I love talking very good about the company. And it was a, it was a, 
I mean, it started in the very, very first beginning. So when I, um, I told you about the story, I was working for the headhunter at some point. I was uh, asked to to help Bombardi to scale up a, a shared service center, and Adobe headhunted me from Brussels after like four years. I was working for uh, for Bombardi. Mm-hmm. And the first thing what impressed me was the state-of-the-art recruitment process. So they had the pitch and the message so accurate. It sounded so fantastic, but it was consistent independently to whom I talked to. So the recruiter in Munich was giving me the same vision of the company, the same story. This is where we are aiming to. This is our goal, what we want to achieve as an organization. What was the story from Adobe? At that point, they just did the move from um, selling um, digital media in, let's say, in packaged boxes, which was like, for example, Photoshop software. Mm-hmm. So you can could get a wrap box at Media Markt. On-premise. Uh, On-premise, you know, with the CD-ROM in your computer. And, you know, the company never knew when will that person buy the new box. Yeah. So they changed, first of all, the whole digital media business uh, to the subscription model, and they entered the digital marketing market. Mm-hmm. So basically the entire you know, second large um, component of the Adobe offering was was um, was created. It came through the first acquisitions, and today you have digital media and digital marketing building amazing revenue for uh, for Adobe. And I just came in 2012 when this decision was made, when they changed to subscription, and when they started to launch the whole digital marketing um, market with predictive analytics and all these fancy stuff, right? And when, when I came, I, Bombardier was a quite political organization. So you always had a little bit to watch um, what you're writing, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. whom you're writing an email, because it might have happened that you received your email back after six weeks with like 20 people in copy because it made a complete you know journey through the company and it 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 was also a company which was um some body at that time which was not only political but also in a big change so also the, the shared service center which I started with was completely brand new when I started that so and during those changes you know some people are not so uh, overexcited about change so you have a lot of blockages and political agreements and discussions and and talks why something should not work although it might be a good thing um, and then when it came to Adobe, everyone was so nice, so open, so friendly, so non-hierarchical, no big egos running around, everyone is giving you a helping hand and a praise and a pat on your back if something went well. I was like, wow, there's, they're, they're literally talking about something went good. I came from an environment where everything was bad, and if you succeeded, it was like, great, but you know, let's let's focus on the next stuff, <laughs> tough stuff. And now I was in this in this um, company which felt like paradise. And I remember the first three months, I was suspicious. I couldn't believe that a company can be so productive, so performance oriented, and at the same time so nice to people. 
and this this feeling of going loving to go to your work you know looking forward to monday to do great stuff with your colleagues um that was a very very strong feeling over many years i had with adobe and um, i also had amazing leaders people i could learn from um, and it was very very people-centric one of the people who probably had a big impact on on creating this culture was donna morris Donna Morris was the chief, chief people officer over many, many years. And um, it <laughs> until today, I feel a little bit embarrassed because when I signed the contract with Adobe, um, she wrote me an email thanking me to, uh, to join the company. And she was looking forward working with me. And congratulations. We are so happy to have you on board, etc. And I believed it must have been an automated email. It didn't went into my mind that she literally wrote that to me. For me, the organization was far too large, and why should a chief people officer care about a talent manager somewhere in Germany? That was the culture I was coming from, mm -hmm. that hierarchy doesn't talk to lower levels. Mm. And now Adobe completely broke that up. People were helping each other. It was open. You could ask questions to anyone of, of any title if it was meaningful for doing your work. And that cr that made people happy and today if you look at attrition um, I still uh, see colleagues working for Adobe which I worked with and they are now 10 years with Adobe 15 years with Adobe 20 years with Adobe this is very very unusual for tech yes. and these are and it's not an organization where people are just sitting there and and you know they're they're progressing in their career because they have the tenure no they move, they move into new roles, they learn, they have this mechanism of continuous learning and, and doing things in an amazing way. And uh, they still bring people, even after 20 years, into new tasks, new projects. It's something which I consider very unique. I agree. And what do you think? Why do people stay that long at Adobe? Because they are working with amazing colleagues. They, many colleagues are among each other really friends. Until today, I'm part of an Adobe alumni group. So we are still meeting with each other. Until today, my last meeting with someone who is ex-Adobe was last week. We went for dinner in, in, in Berlin. So it's a kind of a bond which is created. Um, it's this kind of um, friendliness and, and helpfulness which and, and also building relationships is very fostered by the culture of Adobe. And once you build relationships with amazing people who are smart, who are clever, who are productive, who love working, who share interests and, and the same values, they are not only colleagues, they become friends. And why should you, you know, change a job to a different company if, if you can do amazing things with people you love? if it's working out can can this become dangerous at some point if there is restructuring going on and then people just don't want to not work with friends anymore don't you s see that or think that that can be a problem i mean i i went through a lot of change with adobe as well i mean i started as a head of talent in munich i um was uh, working with a local team for the entire territory of EMEA and uh, like like I had the Dach region, Eastern Europe, and emerging territories, and we covered all kind of roles. And um, beside of that, I had my still my little passion for IT. So the development department, which was based in Hamburg, I did all the recruiting myself at that time. 
They didn't have so many roles per year, so it was manageable for a manager to, to do that hands-on without sharing tech with any other recruiter. So after a few years, I was asked if I would like to lead um, EMEA engineering hiring. So I moved and relocated from, Hamburg to, uh, from, from Munich to Hamburg, and my recruitment team was also based then in Bucharest and in other countries, and I was not leading the Munich team anymore. And still, um, we were one team. Everyone knew everyone. So for me, even this whole change, you know, leaving the old business behind, working with a different business unit, working with a different team of recruiters, have, I had eight different reporting lines during that time I was working there. I had several people I was reporting, like, you know, one by one has changed, so that happens. But it never felt like you start from scratch because the, 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 the cross-collaboration across all the departments, it stays. It stays. Mm -hmm. So you, you might change seats, you might change roles, you might even change location. I've seen a few colleagues from Bucharest moving to, uh, to uh, the EMEA headquarters in, in Maidenhead um, in, uh, in London. So actually, this kind of changes happened all the time. People from Germany relocating to headquarters in San Jose or people from San Jose coming over, experiencing a role in Europe for a few years. That was a very, very common thing, but it was a global organization. And many, many people from that time are still my Facebook friends. I never had so many Facebook friends from a company because people are so open. You don't need to shy away to show who you are. So there is not this office phase and then some my private phase. But no, people, sure, sure. people were like, this is me. I'm included. I'm, you know, one special person and next to another special person. We are different, but we do the right things for the company and then we have a private life which we don't need to shy away to show it. And it makes it so easy to connect with someone. And people were also, yeah, giving their everything, not only their work time to that company. Yes. And that's an atmosphere which it's um, hard to create, but once you have it, it's so precious. Let's talk about recruitment. Um, <coughs> what do you see are the biggest patterns in terms of mistakes companies make to not nail recruiting? Right. Oh, there are many. There are a few I'm, I'm observing uh, until today. Um, one of them is to try to replace someone in a similar way the role was you know, done before. So, like, for example, Jane Doe leaves the company. An hiring manager comes up to me and saying, I'm looking for a replacement for Jane Doe. So I'm like, okay, what exactly are you looking for? And I get exactly the task that person was doing in the past, which is cool, but often they forget to look into their own team for someone who, while Jane Doe left the company, is already doing the job. Mm -hmm. So I'm always asking, why don't you think about creating a career path? Take someone from the team, put a junior into this, this, this uh, professional role or the professional into the senior role and hire from the bottom to create a progression for the people you have. Because the biggest cons uh, complaints we're getting when we are running surveys is also that people are saying, well, whenever there is an interesting position to, to be filled, it's filled externally. We never get the chance to apply for it or we don't get the, the training to move the ladder up and to grow into these kind of roles. And that's a mindset. And I think it's also the role of a recruiter to, you know, not to take the order 
as it comes in, but to ask the relevant question. Have you looked into your team? Have you thought about building up someone um, you know, who is coming as a graduate straight from university? How much would you need to teach? What is the real must-haves and what is the teachable element? And once you come into that discussion, it opens up the market for, on the one hand side, but also um, I think it's hyper important to hire people in a, in a sweet spot, which is somewhere in, in, the, in the middle between, you know, it shouldn't be too, they shouldn't be too stretched. So if the task is too big and the competency is too little, they're in a panic zone immediately. Yeah. And on the other side, um, if, if managers are going the safe path, I'm hiring the most senior person I can get for the budget I'm, I have, um, just thinking of an overhire will fix all my problems and even better, that will not work because those people start in the bore zone and they even progress into the bore out zone and there is no possibility for them to make quickly the next step up. So overhires are super toxic to the teams in my view and they are not helpful, not for the department, not for the individual. But managers tend sometimes, some managers tend to, to, to think that the overhire or someone on the top, top, top level of that specific and, and of the salary is the best hire. And I Don't you do see also a pattern that this is more possible at bigger organizations than in, for instance, a startup that is now existing for three to five years and having maybe reached 500 to 1,000 people, because I see that at that level, companies start to think about, let's call it internal mobility mm -hmm. um, in a strategic way. And there it's even hard sometimes because teams are still small, but for an Adobe, I totally imagine that this is the right thing to do. Do you also see that as a problem for more smaller companies or more for big tech or bigger organizations? I see that also as a problem with smaller companies. One startup I'm working with is um, quite mature in terms of the people they're hiring. And even there, um, I wouldn't say that they, they tend to overhire, but they get very, very attracted by more senior profiles. So for example, um, a role which could be I, I give you a very concrete example. One of the examples is um, there was a role which probably required to have someone with two, three years of experience, and um, they came uh, and, and there was a referral from a candidate who was already on a manager level, comes with like 25 years of experience, and suddenly the whole profile and the whole search changed. They saw how their attention was drawn to this senior profile, and they attempted to hire. And now, three months, six months later, it is still so obvious that that person wouldn't have had been the right person for that role. It was not made, the role was not made for that individual, for that candidate. The company was just so attracted by this knowledge. Um, and they were willing like, to pay three times the budget they, they have attended for that role in the hope that that person will solve all the problems in mm. that department. Yeah. And, but the reality was 
these problems were n- not coming from that department. It just needed to have someone who steps in, gets passionate, gets the work done. No managerial task was required. It was not required to scale, you know, an organization across 500 countries where you need this seniority. No, it just required someone who can do an amazing hands-on job. So it... But I saw how much they got drawn to this profile. Like, like. Uh, what was the role about? It was a sales role, and um, in sales roles, you know, sometimes you just need someone who who is good at sales. Deliver the numbers. And delivers the numbers. And you probably don't need someone who has the leadership experience if you yes. don't have no one to lead at that time. Yes, so hiring the right profile at the right time for the need you have is is crucial. And I see the problem with managers, to be honest, because they are sometimes also don't know, they don't know, or they did not spend il- enough time to mm-hmm. rethink. Yep. And that comes down to planning, in my opinion, that companies or managers or individuals at all tend to take one plan as, yeah, that was the plan and this is how I need to execute. But I like the saying that it's not really about the plan. It's always about the planning, about the process behind it. And okay, yeah, mm-hmm. the outcome of planning is a plan, but that's also just a snapshot of assumptions. But if you don't continue plan, continue to plan, I would not like to um, stick to a plan where I know circumstances changed and I cannot rethink it. There's also saying that no enemy, uh, no plan, Survived first contact with the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very nice <laughs> saying. <laughs> I haven't heard that before. But uh, but I agree. And, you know, the plan is a framework. So what is uh, obviously important uh, for us as, as recruitment leaders is to understand how much budget do we have yes. um, and and uh, to stick to it. Because and that's that, the basic. Yeah, that's that's the basic. But how, how you fill uh, that framework with life, it's it's a journey. Because the mm-hmm. one th- on the one hand side, and we both, know it you know you have this fantasy of the ideal profile which then gets hit by reality what the market has what the market gives um and there are these little details like uh, finding someone who uh, um, for a for a global role in in a small country it's it's a very tough cookie because mostly uh, the companies don't have headquarters in that country. So if you mix a specific language skill with a specific demand on, on the seniority and you look in the, in the wrong territory, you might never f- find someone who fits the profile. But long story short, I think, yes, planning is a good thing, but it needs to be um, flexible and adaptable, first of all, to the reality, but also you know, asking the right question might change the plan quite quickly. Yes. One of the questions I love to ask is after I get the, posi- uh, the the job profile, which is like the job advert. It's never the job profile. It's always like, yeah, that's these true. are like the five tasks we are looking for. This is postable. That's great. And I'm like, okay, so how do you know after six months or 12 months that that person is performing great? What have they accomplished mm-hmm. by then? Mm-hmm. Usually I don't get a straightforward answer. <laughs> it's like, oh, now I need to think. But but after... after Discussing the the the, the, uh, the expected KPIs, and after understanding what the r- role is really about, what Codifying impact does the outcome? Yeah, but w- what is the impact you want that yes. person to do? That completely changes the profile. Yes. And once I have that, or it makes it realistic. Sometimes. Oh, it makes it realistic. Correct. 
Yeah, it sometimes downsizes the profile, so you'd get uh, rid of or all you those. Know, uh, okay, I would need actually a team for that, not a person. <laughs> yeah, or I'm looking for a unicorn. Okay, what do you want to do with that unicorn? Um, riding it, maybe you need a horse. There are more <laughs> horses outside <laughs> than unicorns. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yes, um, that's that's a very, very uh, typical scenario where things changes. But also, again, but coming back to that, I think one of the biggest mistakes is to, to have this unconscious bias that more is better, which mm -hmm. is not always the case. There are amazing young people outside. And I see with some of the companies I'm working with, or specifically with one, most of their current head-offs, they came as working students. And they're doing an amazing job. Mm -hmm. They just hired extremely bright young people. And even I had this unconscious bias, like, oh, that person looks a little bit young for, for that kind of responsibility. And then once I started working with them, I just realizing, yep, yeah, they need a little bit of coaching and leadership. That's true. So this is what I'm currently uh, mainly doing with them and helping them to build their team and setting goals and, you know, getting into this kind of leadership rhythm because they haven't done it before. Yeah. But they're like sponges. Um, nice. I need to say it once and they immediately applied that's all the nice. techniques we're discussing. But I think also that's, that's relevant to, to accomplish that. Yeah. If you don't have that, then I would not say forget it, but it's getting tough because yeah. progression is hard, especially in environments that are fast moving. Yeah. And when you want it, I think you can really make it happen, but then you need to be sharp, you need to be very adaptive mm -hmm. and you really need to be proactive in any sense of there are tasks that need to be done and you do it but also stay on top of your workload to say okay I did now what was expected even if it was a challenge for me but what can I do additionally to make sure that I'm also set up for the next phase and some people stop at some point and that's totally fine but I think that this is a very interesting intense and lovely time but it's not for everyone it's not for everyone but um, having someone who can either show you how to do it right so having experience good ex helps yeah, yeah having having a good mix of some experienced people with excellent leadership skills yes. you know um, young leaders they observe what great looks like yes. and they can they can copy that into their teams so specifically when when i figured you know when i experienced great leadership towards me i was able to take that um excitement over some of these leadership techniques into my teams and you cannot only learn from bad leaders because it's not always like okay now i know how not to lead um Having the experience to work with someone who is an amazing leader, it's it's mind blowing. It it literally, um, I would say you can skip a few very expensive trainings and courses if you have yes. once the experience working with a great leader. To be honest, I also never saw somebody I worked with where I would say, "Wow, this person is really really good," that they learn something from courses or that they learn something from a management workshop. All on the job. I. I actually had one experience with a very, very good leadership workshop. Um, I think it was the the, uh, the Harvard program. And it's a very good tool set. So the one thing is how to lead, how to communicate, how to create transparency, a feeling of belonging, you know, how to praise, how to 
be you know um, have uh, keep your eyes open as a leader and and quickly react if you need to correct something and quickly react if something grace goes extremely well and praise it and give the reward to the individual this is this is one hand but there are some real nitty-gritty techniques which are helping to navigate through that and i learned a few of them and i agree i this. agree but it's really the, the drive, the doing them really do in the background mm. as a leader to make to have an easier life. Definitely. But at the same time, you know, the way how to do that, you can just observe from other people. Yeah, exactly. And of course, the mix is there. But I yeah. think the significance is really then walking the walk. <laughs> yeah. And it's something which uh, people are not born with. I mean, there are yeah. some people which are great, let's call it natural leaders. But if they don't care about the people they're working with, if they don't and you need take to get the, the time and the that. attention to their team, then it's not You're really right, and, and you need to get the chance for that. Yeah. There can be somebody with a lot of talent, but if the person is in the wrong environment, nothing will happen or nothing great will happen, probably. Yeah. But if you put somebody with the right potential to the right challenge in the right environment, oh my God. <laughs> and I love the fact that you're just tapping on the, on the topic of culture. I, I've feel um i got a little bit spoiled at adobe because the culture in my view was was perfectly for me i i can't talk to uh, for for everyone but i literally loved this culture and and for me it was an amazing company and then when i changed companies i got very sensitive when i saw that the culture was not being cared of or it was uh, a company which was not putting people first because the work the people are doing are making the company. The company does not exist without the people. Mm -hmm. And not putting an emphasis on creating a great company culture, I think it's a pity. It, it you know, it, unhappy employees <laughs> are not doing their best job and probably they create the one or other unhappy customer as well because you have this whole chain if i have an extremely great candidate experience and i have not an extremely great employee experience i was either lying to the candidate in the first hand or something broke on the journey after i signed the contract and if you get an amazing candidate experience, you can hire amazing people. Then you create an amazing employee experience, making them happy. They will go above and beyond because they love working there. And people who go above and beyond and love what they are doing, creating um, really happy customers. Mm -hmm. So you can fix with company cultures a lot of real business problems without spending a cent on them. It's for free. It's just being nice yes. and humble and friendly to other people. Yes, and I also think that one real underrated skill, but what I think is really, really, really important when considering culture, is dealing with ambiguity. That oh, companies yes. or employees within companies are able to do that or even spiking in that. And especially if you are a manager, and you have your core employees to drive certain changes or initiatives around you, a pattern I see is that they are really good with handling ambiguity. But you also need to give them the freedom to strive in ambiguity. Mm -hmm. That requires that a company gives you the allowance to make decisions and to fail. Yes. 
well. and to recover from a and failure. And then not finger point. And no finger pointing, not Why blaming. Why didn't you tell exactly. me up front? If any little mistake m might cost you your promotion, your career, your performance, and it's not considered as a learning and something good. I mean, I'm not talking about large mistakes like, oh, I forgot I have a team somewhere and went on holiday for four months. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm talking about you know business mistakes and we all know sometimes you you what would uh, be a business mistake let's call it you know setting up a sourcing mix for a big project and you assume okay these are the uh, you know for that amount of roles i need external support because i think my team can't handle that so buying capacity etc and then at some point someone comes off and says i would have expected you should do it yourself I'm like mm. well but we all know there is this triangle, you know, time, quality, money. Yeah. And if you have very little time, a fully loaded team, you have to go external or you reprioritize that type of roles and then you probably can do them in-house. Mm -hmm. But if these kind of little decisions which are sitting with a role are, if, and sometimes they are wrong, we do mistakes every day, you know. Or even someone hired the wrong candidate. It happens. It happens every day. Even if you do all the great interviewing techniques, sometimes you make a hire and then you figure out it was not good. If that gets punished, people will go the safe route. They will stop asking the questions. They will just hire what is demanded from them by the manager, not giving that their their own internal, you know, their, their personal twist, not giving their personal opinion, their market feedback, etc. So if something like this goes wrong and an organization accepts that, that sometimes, yeah, where people are working, sometimes shit happens, then you have the wrong culture and people will not even try. I would really appreciate if you would subscribe to the show in case you like it. What are other mistakes in recruitment? Well, I wouldn't call it a mistake, but just staying with the example, I remember one one of my um, uh, leaders in the U.S. Um, he he told us, "I want you to headhunt as much as you can." Obviously, headhunting meant in the territory that sometimes you tap into the you know into a customer or into a partner organization, and at that time we didn't have any blacklist companies. It was. We had like, you can approach any kind of company. We have a commitment that we can hire from everywhere and we have to hire from everywhere because we are not uh, having, you know, contracts or no, no touch uh, uh, companies or any agreements in that type. And yes, sometimes some of those leaders of the other companies called us up or escalated through the business saying, hey, stop hunting our people. Stop approaching that. We have a partnership here, so we don't want you to steal our stuff and our talent. And um, it's a completely different story why it was so important not to stop headhunting at these companies and not to shy away because we, it was forbidden to have these agreements. There was a lawsuit many years ago in, in the US that companies had any agreement not to hire from each other and then it was considered like, um, you know, um, I, what is the expression in English? Um, like I interfering in the normal economy. Competition. Yeah, in the comp yeah, interfering with competition. So long story short, um, my boss once said, if you get a call or if I get a call and someone complains that you have touched a company and you, even your business says, don't touch it, don't touch it, you know, it's our partner. Like, we have to get the people there out. There's the talent, we have to hire that person, we want to hire that person, it's the individual we selected, 
we move forward. And if someone was crying and our big boss from the US heard about it, he was like, yeah, it's good. If I get an escalation, I know you're doing your job. I was like, That's, this is freeing. <laughs> and so all my teams and, and the people I was working with, we never had this shyness of, of breaking into some, uh, some organization and talking to the talent there and making sure that we you know, have these conversations. There was never this kind of line where you push a recruiter over it and say, you know, you're not allowed to touch that talent, but it's the talent we want, so sneak in. It feels awkward. I don't want to have stressed recruiters who are like freaking out that they have to do something which doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. So having the, the freedom and the empowerment and the enablement from your organization saying, I trust, you know what you're doing. And if you fail, if you fall, if you mess something up or you break something, come to me, we will fix it. As long as you did it with good intentions and by trying something to accomplish something great. I think this is a type of culture which we are sometimes missing here in Germany, where this, this investigation, whose fault is it, and who should be punished for this mistake, is, is, is still a quite common pattern. Yes, yes, I agree. But when you look into things that companies maybe not get right, that recruitment works very well, what else would you see? Beside of the, uh, I mean, beside of that, what we talked about already is um, the lack of collaboration with recruitment. If management and recruitment don't understand each others as partners and are not partners in crime and get things done together, then most then mistakes happen. And, and it's not only on the candidate experience side, but usually then the process gets very, very lengthy if there is a disconnect or you have this kind of um, finger pointing, you know, why is your role not filled yet? Yep, because recruitment hasn't sent me the right candidates. Once you're in that kind of um, silos, it's hard to fill roles in the best possible way. So I think a, a big mistake is taking ser uh, taking recruitment as a let's say service organization or some you know some young people sending me CVs it's not that enable your recruitment partner give them all the insights they need to have make sure they really understand what you are doing in your department take the time calibrate with them the profiles you know, have these feedback conversations. How often we see that, that you get a two-liner saying, yeah, I wasn't convinced, do we have other candidates? I'm like, why haven't you been convinced? What is it? Because every touch point with a candidate is an opportunity for the recruiter to learn and to become yeah. far better in such a quick time. And once you get the machine running... It's like being the product manager for the organization. Yes. <laughs> like... <laughs> Exactly as you say that. So you you need to have this mindset that recruitment is not the problem of the recruiter. An unfilled role is a problem for the organization. An unfilled role slows down everything. And it might be so impactful and crucial for the organization. And you cannot put that responsibility on the recruiter's shoulder. You're sitting with them in one boat. Unfilled roles cost around from companies bigger 250 employees around 70k a year yeah. per unfilled position in opportunity costs yeah for smaller organizations below 250 it's a bit slower at around 40k but still significant yeah but at the same time look at the cost of a wrong hire 
Yeah. <laughs> Which I even higher because they create damage. And you might even lose from, from, from a department. Did you calculate it once? Well, we were calculating roughly with the average salary of 100K and the average tenure of five years. And then you end up with, uh, you know, the cost of uh, or the impact of one uh, of, of a higher of 500K roughly. But then when you look at the cost, uh, what, what kind of damage is done by the wrong hire, you also need to take under consideration if they, for example, had a touch point with a client who then didn't sign a contract or who, who didn't extend the contract. Or did that person, for example, frustrate three departments around mm -hmm. that individual so that there is suddenly a silo thinking, a disconnect, projects break? I think the biggest impact of the wrong hire on an organization is an in uh, immediate team because the high performers yes, get somebody very, should not very stay five frustrated. Years if yeah, it's that person hire. will not stay five years, that's for sure. However, um, don't Did you see it? Yeah. I, I did not see it. I But okay. Well, I, I've seen I've, I've seen sometimes, you know, people in roles where they probably were not ideal for even for longer than a year. And then just two. okay, yeah, okay, that's also yeah. bad, and that happens, yeah. But it's it's rare, and it's also rare in 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 these times. If you look backwards, like 20 years, it was still more common that people stay forever in, in a role. And, and sometimes you had this one colleague in the department, you say, but you have no idea what that person is doing. It's there since 25 years, but we don't exactly know what that person is doing. That's something which was like a running joke oh, 20 years ago. It's maybe if you know the, the Dilbert comics, it's a kind no. of that. You don't know Dilbert? No. no. Oh, you should look that up. <laughs> Okay, any final words? It was lovely to be here with you and I really loved that conversation. So I hope we can we can continue that at some point with a, another cup of coffee or for a dinner. I really like it. And I think the recruitment is such a broad and exciting um, profession. We will never run out of stories. That's true, I agree. <laughs> Thanks also for being my guest. It was really lovely to talk to you. 